Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys at a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, it was my week to pick the movie, and uh, just sort of out of the blue, I chose 1985's Reanimator. Pretty famous horror movie directed by Stuart Gordon. The reason I picked it was just because it's, I think, one of the more notorious, I suppose, horror movies. It's a franchise. There are at least three, I think. There's three. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just hadn't done it yet. And this was one that had always been on the shelves in the horror section. In fact, my understanding is, although it, it did okay in the theater, and it was actually surprisingly well-reviewed at the time by the critics, it, it wasn't like a smashing success, but it apparently found huge success on home video release. Some of that may be due to the fact that what they released in the theater was an R-rated version, and what came out in home video was a little closer to the movie that they wanted, um, I think had almost an extra 15 minutes in it, which was the the one that pretty much everybody ended up seeing, (laughs) which which has all the gore effects and all the the shocking scenes and things intact. So I uh, remember seeing this as a kid and uh, being pretty impressed with it. So I just thought, yeah, let's let's watch Reanimator. I really had not seen it since I was a kid. I hadn't seen any of the other movies in the franchise. Uh, it was a fun movie. It was a bit notorious, uh, but it wasn't something I was terribly interested in continuing to, you know, see ooh, what happens in part two, what happens in part three. So I kind of stopped there. How about you, Craig? Uh, what's your history with Reanimator? I remember seeing it on the shelves all the time, and I don't remember specifically why I never picked it up. I don't know. The uh, box art is, uh, I, I, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's a little silly looking. It, it, it's uh, yeah. it's kind of schlocky looking. And so I think that probably as a kid, I assumed that it was intentionally schlocky and, and maybe that's why I wasn't really drawn to it. So I didn't see it until I was in college, graduate school actually. But <laughs> we've been doing this for so long now that when you recommended that we do this, I was 100% sure that we had already done it. Like, <laughs> I was positive that we had already done it. And I'm I'm Googling us and Reanimator, and I'm like, I know it's there. It's got to be there. We have surely done this movie, but we had It's crazy, right? <laughs> I, I... <laughs> it's so true. I'm honestly not sure why either. Like, uh, again, it's just one of those movies. I think every horror fan knows of it, Uh even if you haven't seen it. I think it's just one of those that gets brought up every now and then and talked about, but not like on the same level as most other horror franchises. It's like the lower rent one. Yeah, but at the same time, I also think that it's very much considered like a camp classic. Mm. And I think that it deserves that recognition and there's a lot of really good stuff going on here there really is like the cinematography's good the effects are are cool um it's an interesting dark but also darkly comedic story it pushes some boundaries um almost to the point of making me a little bit uncomfortable in some places which mm-hmm. which is is good uh i think but but i i also don't think that it crosses the line into being entirely distasteful it's weird because it's 
campy and silly, and, and you could almost call it so bad it's good, except for that it's really not bad. It's just, uh, no. it's just different and odd, but also fun and, and definitely, like, I feel like if you are a horror fan, you're obligated to see it. And, and <laughs> I don't think, I, I don't think that you're going to be disappointed. It may not be your cup of tea, but I think that if you appreciate the genre, you're going to appreciate the movie and what they were doing here. And there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, you know, like, yes, gosh, the, so it, it's directed by Stuart Gordon, who we've done a couple of his movies. We've done dolls, which was a favorite of mine when I was a kid. We did castle freak, which neither of us loved, but it was fun to talk. We about. haven't done castle. We freak, haven't Craig. yet. Craig, we which have one not, am I thinking no, of? <laughs> which one am I thinking of, of with the, the guy in the ice, palace in the basement <laughs> oh oh no you're thinking of that's that canadian one he didn't have anything to do ghost uh, uh, ghost story, i don't ghost i don't story. know what yeah. it was i always think of that as castle freak okay so we haven't done castle freak yet but i'm familiar with the the <laughs> title see i told you i can't remember uh, six years 300 plus episodes i have no idea i completely understand <laughs> but okay so we're familiar with Stuart gordon it's also um produced by brian yunza yeah he, who by the way directed both sequels but but uh, Brian Yesna did Society, which remains one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He also did one of the Silent Night, Deadly Nights, I think part three or four. four, four. The Initiation, also a very bizarre Very one, bizarre. Right? So it comes already from, you know, kind of this pedigree of these kind of weird out there movies done by these guys who do these weird out there things. And so even that, you know, is tempting enough for me to be interested. You know, it's true, right? There are these little camps of people, right? You have like the the sort of a Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham's and, you know, sort of their circle of people who were doing The Hills Have Eyes and the slasher movies and Friday the 13th. And then you kind of have this camp of like Sam Raimi and like his group, you know, we've talked about this, how you see that like even though like directors of some movies will end up acting in other people's movies or they'll produce each other's movies and stuff like that. And then over here you have Empire Pictures and uh, Full Moon Pictures uh-huh. and uh, Brian Usna and uh, Stuart Gordon and um, the guy who did, uh, I think, like Return of the Living Dead. And, and th- th- that seemed to be like another camp, you know, this, these, these all kind of like very successful production houses or production teams or just like we've said, like people who just kind of seem to know each other and encourage each other and work on each other's projects. And this definitely comes from that side, and I, I'm getting a greater appreciation for this camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As we do this podcast, because some of them, I used to laugh because a lot of the full moon pictures or empire pictures uh, that are produced, they're they're pretty. I don't want to say bad. Well, that's some of very, them are. Some of them are bad. They're bad. Um, but a lot of them are are well, they're almost all low budget. Uh-huh. They're almost all the acting can can vary as far as quality goes. But you, the concepts, they're just a couple steps beyond pure exploitation that get you beyond exploitation and sort of into, wow, this is kind of interesting and unique and original realm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, we did, like, Dolls is an interesting movie. Uh, even that Silent Night, Deadly Night initiation was an interesting movie. Yeah. Society was a really weird movie. But my goodness, you know, like... How fun. Oh, gosh, yeah. It was super original and interesting. Uh-huh. Puppet Master series and all that. So it's like there is this camp here that I'm kind of like. And I, I saw a lot of what I liked about these kinds of movies in Reanimator. 
And I think Reanimator is definitely up at the top of the pack. Yeah. As far as production value, as far as acting, sincerity, even special effects, particularly for the time, are quite impressive. I read that the producer, uh, I can't remember the owner of uh, Full Moon Pictures... Charles Band, isn't it? Charles Band, yes, that's right. He didn't even like this movie when he produced it. Although, apparently, his production house was only going to distribute the movie. And then after they started seeing dailies, they decided to get a little more involved in the production of it and help them out a little bit more in that way. Um, Richard Band, his brother, composed the music. He's composed the music for a ton of these films. I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. I really enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. And it wasn't as... You know... (laughs) The movie calls itself a horror comedy in a lot of places. It's not... If you say, hey, we're going to sit down and watch this horror comedy, you're going to have an expectation that this movie is not going to meet. It is not a laugh out loud, a lot of silly stuff happening. It's darkly comic. Yeah. It's not a so bad, it's funny movie. It's very clearly, intentionally darkly comic. And I think that it, it just reaches a certain level of sophistication there where there's that layer there for you. If you enjoy that kind of thing and you're looking for it, you definitely get it. And so there are scenes where on their face, as we describe them, you're going to think, oh my God, this is terrible. But there's a layer to those scenes that plays out th- that I was laughing <laughs> yeah. in the movie. Yeah, A movie that can kind of touch all these little places and hit all these buttons for you simultaneously uh, is impressive. So ultimately, I I really enjoyed watching this again. Yeah, it was an interesting watch. I think that a lot of the comedy comes from the intensity of Jeffrey Combs' performance as uh, Herbert West, who is kind of... I don't know if he's the main character, but he's he's a central character for sure. And and we can talk more about him in a second, but the inspiration for the movie, Stuart Gordon was just talking with some friends um, about his frustration that there were so many vampire movies, particularly Dracula movies and Dracula knockoffs. And he thought that it would be interesting to, you know, break out of that and see something different, like... Uh, more Frankenstein-inspired movies. And one of his friends said, well, have you read this story, Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft? And uh, Gordon was familiar with Lovecraft's work, but not that particular story, which had been out of print for a long time. So he went to the library and he read it, and he was inspired by it, and that's where the idea for this movie came from. But he initially conceived it as a stage play, a completely straight, you know, no humor involved uh, stage play. And then that evolved into a television pilot, a 30-minute television pilot. And then I think he wrote, like, something like 13 or 19 episodes of this television show. Yeah, with with a couple co-writers, yeah, uh-huh. and it was also told like you know half hour is not saleable, like like make it an hour, so thirteen hours of this, I guess, you know, presumably for season one, right? right. If not, it is the kind of thing that I suppose could, especially nowadays, would make for a an interesting television series. It could, you know? it could, I think, but but I I don't remember exactly how it happened but eventually you know it, it continued to evolve and it became a feature film well 
there's more of a market for horror on television now than there used to be. That right? that's right. Yeah, and so this is uh, what it became. And um, the story they had in- initially intended to try to remain really faithful to Lovecraft's story, which, by the way, I haven't read. I, I have read some of Lovecraft's stuff, but I've not read this, so I can't speak to you know how faithful it is but they eventually deviated uh from the story a little bit from my understanding is that this uh movie kind of adapts the first half of Lovecraft's story and then the second movie Bride of Reanimator kind of adapts the second half of the story or at least elements of it and then the third movie is called Beyond Reanimator because it goes beyond the story that Lovecraft told in his original <laughs> tale. I've not seen any of the well any either of the sequels. I've I've read about them and they sound kind of interesting but um, I haven't seen them yet. But here we are with this movie. It opens uh, at Zurich University, and there's this big commotion. There's, like, screaming behind a door, and security guards and a nurse are frantically knocking at the door and calling the name um, of this doctor, you know, Dr. Gruber, Hans Gruber. And when they finally burst in, they see young medical student Herbert West, played by Jeffrey Combs, grappling with this Dr. Gruber who is, like, freaking out, and he's got, like, his face, like, his eyeballs and the veins in his face are, like, pulsating, and his eyes, like, burst, and blood sprays all over the nurse. The nurse says, you killed him, and he very seriously and very sweaty says, No, I did not. I gave him life. <laughs> this this was Jeffrey Combs one of his first major roles. He took it he said because he needed the work and he never expected that it would have a wide audience anyway. <laughs> Ironically, this is absolutely 100% the defining role of his career. Yeah. He has played it again in both of the sequels. And most of his other work has been in horror, playing characters much like this one. He plays it very serious, very over the top, and he just has this lunatic intensity in every scene. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? This, it's actually... I mean, when you say over the top, yes. I mean, he, he's playing it very sincerely, and he's very playing it very hardcore, but it's not a like a parody. You know what I mean? It's not a silly, crazy, campy, I, I think, mad scientist, in this case, med student, you know, who's dead serious about his work and believes that he's going to be reanimating the dead and, you know, nobody understands my genius kind of thing. The way that he played it, and I was quite impressed by it, I think I, I in my life have known at least three or four people very antisocial like him. I mean, they're not reanimating the dead, but they're people who are just a little off, a little narcissistic, maybe somewhere on a particular spectrum, but you know, I don't really know how to describe this. But there are just people who, who don't get feelings, who don't really care about others. Like they're just lacking a little bit of this this humanity, and usually they're obsessed with something, right? They're obsessed with a collection, or they're obsessed with a particular hobby, or they're obsessed with their work. And even though 
he's a dick. Yeah, he, <laughs> he is. comes across from the get go in this movie as like within five seconds of meeting him, he's the kind of guy you know he's a dick. At the same time, I have known people like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know that I've I don't know that I've known people like this, but he does. I mean, like you said, he just plays it in such a sincere way. You you could say he's a dick, and I would I would say he's a dick, but you could also argue that he's just completely straightforward. Like he doesn't he tells it like it is, you know, or at least yes. the way that he sees it. So if if he has a criticism of something or someone, he will just say it directly to their face um, he'll say it and if you and if you don't like it you know he doesn't, he doesn't care. really care or he just doesn't get why not everybody else sees the world the way he does he doesn't get hey he just told you something straight like you should agree with him and if you don't well you know that's your problem and there were times in the movie where he could have veered into this sort of caricature and he didn't and i was really impressed with that restraint as silly as the whole concept of the movie is, and as silly as the movie does get, you know, it made his character more believable to me. I could relate to him, even though ultimately he's not a likable character for for the most part. Yeah, I don't think you know? I could relate to him, but I do really like Jeffrey Combs' performance. In fact, I believe that this movie rests on his shoulders. I, I don't think mm. I don't think that this movie would be as well remembered if it weren't for his performance. Um, I could be wrong. Um, maybe another actor could have done it differently or similarly and you know with similar results i don't know but jeffrey combs is um unique he has a unique style um at least as he works in this film and i like you know he pops up in things particularly in horror movies and i'm always happy to see him cellar dweller right he was the cartoonist he had a very brief cameo role in the beginning yes yes yeah i liked him in that i just i just watched uh, the house on Haunted Hill from the uh, the early aughts, I think. Oh yeah, it's not a good movie, but he's in it, <laughs> and he plays he plays a, a crazy doctor in that. I forgot that. It, so after that opening scene, um, then we get the opening credits, which the the visuals of the opening credits I really liked. It's all um, like illustrations out of medical textbooks, mm-hmm. done in like fluorescent colors and changing colors and and the the illustrations kind of swirl around it's a it's it's a great visual i really enjoyed it i also really liked the score but the film is is somewhat heavily criticized for borrowing heavily from the score of psycho which you can it's you know blatant on its face (laughs) they've outright accused him of plagiarizing the score is very fitting for the movie in addition to kind of sounding like psycho it also reminded me a lot of the score of troll which i love and also i don't know if you're familiar with this movie or not but the movie death becomes her with goldie hahn and meryl streep oh yeah I love that one. Me too. Very similar score. Very, very similar. And and shockingly, a very similar movie about a serum that reanimates the dead. So maybe that was intentional on the makers of that movie's part. But That's a very interesting point. When that score first came on, I was like, wait a second. This is the freaking score to Psycho. How did they pull that off? Did they get permission to use it? Whatever. 
Um, and you're right. It is to say it's borrowed is a very uh, generous, uh-huh. you know, or inspired by. It, it's a blatant ripoff. And I think Richard Bands even admitted. He said, "Yeah, I took the score from Psycho because I thought it was fitting because the character is a bit Norman Batesy." But then I, you know, added my own touch and flair to it. I'm like, "What composer does that? That is, you've got." giant balls <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm just gonna take the score from psycho and add my own flair to it and put it in the opening credits and a motif throughout the whole film but it works uh, honestly i very much enjoyed the score i liked it throughout yeah, and, and i thought that it really set a good tone and atmosphere throughout i mean and it, and it varies mm-hmm. depending on what type of action is happening but i really liked it we jump into the main story which takes place at miskatonic medical school in arkham massachusetts arkham <laughs> um is a common set piece for hp lovecraft stuff and this is where we meet our main characters we've got a young good-looking doctor resident i believe dan kane played by Bruce Abbott, and we see him, it ends up kind of being significant, I guess. The first time we meet him, he's frantically performing CPR on this heavy woman, and he's unable to revive her. The supervising doctor tells him, you know, sometimes you just have to let people go or whatever, which... it's a bookend. It comes back at the end of the movie. Um, Interesting piece of trivia. Bruce Abbott, who plays the doctor, said that he was really, really (laughs) intense in in this CPR scene, and he believes that he actually broke like three ribs of the extra who he was working on here. Also, this woman, (laughs) this heavyset woman who he's working on, who, you know, her shirt is ripped open, so her boobs are just flopping around. Apparently, I don't even know what this means, but apparently she was a dildo enthusiast. (laughs) 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 And so she, like, hid dildos all around the set. That's hilarious. Um, And I wish that I had a friend who was a dildo enthusiast just so I could, like, tell people. (laughs) that like oh this is my friend she's a dildo enthusiast (laughs) (laughs) we should have consulted a dildo enthusiast to give us a little more insight into this uh you know maybe go frame by frame through the movie and point some things out to us I, i have to say at this point one thing i really respected about this movie was the casual nudity uh-huh. There's a lot of nudity in this movie, a lot. but it's it's not normal. Like it's not like normal for horror movies nudity. It's like normal for life nudity for uh-huh. the most part. This guy's got her chest open. They got doctors standing around, and she's not like this absolutely gorgeous, perfect body person. Yeah, this isn't supposed to be a titillating, exploitative scene with the nudity. And everywhere else through the movie, when we get reanimated corpses and things like that, it's like yeah, they don't even they don't even put like fake underwear or whatever no these bodies are going to be nude and so when they leap up and start running around they're nude and i was like you know i really appreciate this it serves the story it's very honest true to life yeah i agree with you especially with the corpses and stuff because you know corpses aren't dressed you know they they are are naked i i thought that it was a little strange for whatever reason especially since initially they released this unrated um that they clearly went out of their way with angles to never show penis like true women full frontal great no problem men it was always shot in such a way that the legs were you know just at such an angle that no penis and which whatever that's fine i don't care i've seen enough dick in my life that i don't need to see it 
in a movie, but <laughs> but it, it was just interesting to me that uh, they kind of went out of their way to hide that. But yeah, other than that, there is a lot. The the other main characters, um, there's the dean of the university, Dean Halsey, who introduces Dr. Dan to their new student resident, who is uh, Herbert West, Jeffrey Combs, um, who we've already met. And then uh, one of the professors at the medical school is Dr. Carl Hill, played by an actor, a, a tall, gaunt actor named David Gale. Um, I think that this part was originally written for Christopher Lee, I think. One of the fa- one of the famous, you know, horror icons, but he turned it down. And he's a brain doctor. Herbert West immediately insults him to his face. I know your work, Dr. Hill, quite well. Your theory on the location of the will and the brain is interesting. Though derivative of Dr. Gruber's research in the early 70s, so derivative, in fact, that in Europe it's considered plagiarized. And your support of the 12-minute limit on the life of the brainstem after death. Six to 12 minutes, Mr. Uh... West. Herbert West. Frankly, Dr. Uh, Hill, your work on brain death is outdated. That's just the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Um, and then there's also uh, Dan's girlfriend, Megan, played by a very young beautiful, fresh-faced Barbara Crampton. Yeah. uh, Who is an icon, an absolute icon of the horror world. And she's young and gorgeous here. Um, She's of a certain age and gorgeous now and still uh, working all of the time. She's a huge star in the world of horror. And it's really... she's, She's good. She's fun in this movie. She's pretty. She's not afraid to let her tits out she's fully nude towards the end of the movie she's she's stripped completely nude and she's she's talked about it uh she's talked about doing nudity in her films and she just said you know if it serves the story if it serves the film i'll do it i don't care the quote that i read was from an interview that she did sometime post 2000 um, and she said, I would still do it now. She's like, you know, I don't know. When I'm, you know, a withered old grandmother, maybe I'll feel differently, but maybe not. <laughs> you know, like, nudity just doesn't bother her. And she, again, she's a beautiful woman. Um, I also think that she's a representation of a healthy body. You know, like, she's not rail thin. She looks like a healthy young woman. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have a lot of admiration for her just because of all of the work that she's done and and how she's represented herself and and maintained such a impressive career she has even today right mm-hmm. uh, and and this is one of her very first film roles i think she was on days of our lives just up until the year before this movie came out she had a couple film roles uh one movie body double one movie called fraternity vacation and then this one and then i think the very next year we saw her in one of my all-time favorite movies, Chopping Mall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she hasn't really left the horror genre since, except she's dipped back and forth into soap operas uh, a little bit every now and then. Like in the 90s, I think she was back in a couple of those. It's not surprising at all. You know, I feel like <laughs> the horror world and the daytime soap world, <laughs> they they cross paths all the time. <laughs> but she not only is she Dan's girlfriend, but she's also Dean Halsey's 
daughter. Dan and and Megan, we find out that they're a couple, and then immediately there's a, a quick sex scene between the two of them, and then uh, Herbert West responds to not an advertisement, but like a bulletin board post that Dan had made looking for a roommate. So West moves in with Dan. He's all excited about the house because it's got a basement that he can like set up a lab in. <laughs> I don't know. You know, a lot of things happen, but I don't know how much of it's consequential. Like one of the scenes, one of the scenes that I thought was really funny, and I don't really don't understand, was that we see Dan and West in Doctor Hill's class, and Hill is like demonstrating how to open a head for brain surgery, and West is just sitting there in the class, strangely snapping pencils in half, like. <laughs> Like with a real intensity in his face. I'm like, what are you doing? It's so weird. I wondered for a while if it was a very, like an outdated reference to something. You know what I mean? Like, is this the way that people used to tease their professors or interrupt them in the middle of a speech by loudly snapping a pencil or something? But it it irritates the hell out of him. And I think probably the, the most consequential thing that we have going on here is this dynamic as being set up where Dan Kane and Megan are dating and she's the dean's daughter and that's problematic because you know he possibly could be accused i suppose of of getting currying favor with the dean which maybe would be a big deal and it would ruin his career if it's found out that they're sleeping together the dean would be angry if if i mean he knows that they're sleep he knows that they're dating <laughs> right. i guess he do, he would <laughs> doesn't know they're sleeping together okay that was, that was so that was so hilarious to me like it was so funny. He, like dan is a med student and you know it's not like they're 16 you know these are mm. people in their 20s yeah. and yeah the dad the dean knows they're dating but it would be like a huge huge deal if he found out they were also f***ing like, like yes. come on <laughs> what come on of course they are <laughs> you're a doctor you know how these things work <laughs> of oh, a university especially <laughs> well and then there's also a, a weird dynamic at one point Dr. Hill, who's just kind of creepy yes. anyway, he has dinner with um, the Dean and Megan, and he's yes. super creepy towards Megan. It's disgusting. Up to this point, my sympathies were with Dr. Hill. I thought Dr. Hill seemed fairly normal dude. He's a professor. He's very distinguished. He's well-respected. He's got this, like, uh, they mentioned something about his amazing new laser surgery tool that's going to revolutionize brain science or whatever, and he's getting grants for the university, and he's really chummy with the dean. And then West comes in. He's super douchey to him. And, yeah, you sympathize with Hill, not with West, up to this point. And then they have this lovely little, uh, I call it like, like a little 80s fancy dinner for rich people, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I love these scenes in movies from this era where it's it's like in their home, they're sitting down and they have a white tablecloth and linen napkins and all the fine china is out and they're drinking wine from crystal goblets and pouring brandy from I mean and they're just, dressed for the occasion like they're yeah. dressed in suits you know and uh, and they're and they're like lit candles on the table you right. know like did anybody ever really do this I don't know but that's how it's portrayed in movies all the time and this is a real pivotal scene and it's also a very baffling scene 
I was shocked that Yuzna didn't direct this because this is these are the kinds of scenes sometimes we get in oh, the movies yeah. that he's involved it with. It felt very society, sure. Yeah, it just things suddenly take a turn for the surreal, both in the cinematography and and I liked that. It really puts you off. Uh, you, you know, it's it's just a very weird psychological effect. They're all sitting and chatting. Hill is actually kind of putting the screws a little bit to the dean, saying, you know. I heard, you know, I know that your daughter is dating this guy. Do you really think that's appropriate? And they, he kind of mentions West. You know, West just moved in with this guy, and I think the two of them are working on something that's kind of bad news. And then the daughter comes in. I think, oh, she's sitting there. But uh, Kane, Dan, comes in to pick them, to pick her up. And they all shake hands and things. And uh, Hill is like, oh, no, you should stay. You know, have a couple drinks with us. And they're like, no, we really need to get going. And then he practically commands them. No, stay, like, have a drink. And they all kind of look around, and there's some awkwardness, and he's like, okay, we'll have a drink. And then he starts grilling Dan on West. You know, I hear the West is staying at your house, and blah, 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 blah. They leave, and as soon as they leave, Hill starts asking Dean Halsey. He's like, so, you know, I don't think it's appropriate that your daughter be you know, dating this guy. Do you realize what it would do for your reputation and for his reputation? You need to get rid. And while he's saying these things, the camera now suddenly, we've almost like from Dean's perspective. So Hill is now suddenly like the backdrop disappears. It's almost like he's in a black room with this spooky kind of backlighting, staring straight into the camera and very deadpan. Eventually you realize it's like he's hypnotizing him. He's got this sort of hypnotic aspect to him where he's delivering his lines very slow and very deliberate. And then it goes back to Dean Halsey and he's entranced. It just gets gets right to him. And then the fire, like it starts to focus on the fire and then suddenly we see the light of the fire on them. It gets very surreal and almost dreamlike and weird right here. Yeah, it, it was it was initially a subplot that ended up getting dropped that he does have the ability to like Jedi mind trick people. Like, but it wasn't totally dropped. I mean, well, there are he still does fragments several of times it. Yeah, through the movie. You see yeah. him do it once with um, West. You know, it, it could, in the scene with West later, it could just be kind of seen as intimidation, but it that that's out of character for West. West is not yeah. easily intimidated. Yes. Um, so if, if you know that it was initially intended as um, a subplot that he could mind control people, it makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, you're like, why, all of a sudden, why now is West, who has been defiant, why all of a sudden is he submissive? And it also explains other things, too, like the fact that uh, in the end, there's there's a whole gang of reanimated corpses, and West can apparently puppeteer all of them at the same yeah. time. Um, well, I felt it was sort of still in there. Because I, I, then, you know, the the later scene with West, where he's talking to him and West is also seemingly entranced, it's shot very much the same way. And that was the point when I, was, I realized, oh, this isn't just weirdness. Like, he has some kind of special mental power. I didn't think it was supernatural. I thought, oh, well, this is a brain surgeon. He's clearly studied how to, you know, maybe somehow hypnotize people or whatever and do it. And I don't know. It was an interesting and unique element that kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, I, I liked it. But just like society and just like some of the things I like about some of these other films is it's way out of left field. And it 
the movie becomes very surreal during these moments, and it kind of puts you on edge a little bit, and I really like that bit. Well, it is, I, I mean, it definitely is still there. It's just that it's never commented on or explained. So Yeah, that's right. You just kind of have to figure it out for yourself, I guess. But also what happens during the scene is suddenly you realize things are more complicated than you thought, right? Because up to this point, I don't know how you felt, I felt of Hill as a sympathetic character. And after this scene, I was like, God, he's a douchebag, too. Well, I thought he was a douchebag anyway, but it, it wasn't so much, you know, the, the mind control thing that, that freaked me out. It was the creepy, gross, disgusting toast that he does to Megan. Well, then, one last toast. Hmm? To Megan. My esteemed colleagues, capable, beautiful, loving daughter. The obsession of all who fall under her spell. Like, ew, gross. <laughs> and he says that yeah. right in front of her dad and her boyfriend. Like, ugh. Yeah. And, ugh, gross. And he clearly is obsessed with her, which comes in uh, to play later. But um, basically, Dan finds out about West's work with reanimating corpses because West, he kills Dan's cat. He, he claims that he found it dead, but... That seems highly improbable. Uh, Megan finds the cat in, like, West's dorm fridge in his room, which is also a funny scene because West is incensed that anybody would have the audacity to come into his room, even though he's got his roommate's cat in in his refrigerator. And then there's a great scene where it's the middle of the night and Dan hears a terrible noise from the cellar, and it sounds like a possessed cat or a cat screaming or something and he goes down to the cellar to find west being attacked by this cat i can't believe is this two weeks in a row that we've had a a genetically enhanced (laughs) evil cat like you go six years six years with no genetically enhanced evil cats and then two in a row and and I did, I think uh, for Uninvited, I did say this is the very first horror movie that we've done with a genetically enhanced mutant cat. But, <laughs> no, I, I didn't realize there was another one right around the corner. <laughs> right around the corner. And so he's reanimated this cat and they fight it. And it's hilarious because they're obviously fighting a toy. It's so funny. Well, it's just, it, it's well shot too, actually. You oh, know, yeah, when, when he comes down the stairs, like he kind of knocks a light. It's like, you know, it's like your typical dark basement that's lit by one swinging light. And so the light starts swinging around. And so I think part of what actually makes this scene work and feel more intense due to their low budget is just the fact that that light is coming in and out at regular intervals. It's almost strobing, right? Yeah. So uh, that also sort of helps to hide the fact that they're running around the basement, absolutely destroying it with bats and things just to get to this cat. And then when the cat finally does leap back out at uh, Dan, he catches the cat and throws it against the wall. Yeah, and smacks the wall and falls down, and I mean, I just thought it was hilarious. I'm sorry, it is I was hilarious. laughing so hard. It's gross. This. Um, this is it's a bloody movie. It's a violent movie. This they Dan kills the cat, and then West is like, I can reanimate things, and he tells him the whole thing, and Dan's like, I don't believe you. He's like, Okay, well, watch this. So he injects the cat again with this serum. <laughs> He's got this serum that is quite literally glow stick 
liquid so it's this you know luminescent glowing yeah it looks great um he injects it into the cat the cat is mangled beyond repair but it comes back to life anyway so it's just this mangled puppet bloody cat like writhing around on the table and it's disgusting it looks fake but it's gross megan comes in and sees it don't expect it to tango it has a broken back Birth is always painful. It was dead. Twice. (laughs) This is where, you know, the dark comedy of this comes in. The fight with the cat is funny, although it shouldn't be, right? It's like, oh, cruelty to animals, whatever. He reanimates this dead, mangled cat, which must be absolutely horrible for the cat. But it still looks kind of funny. And when, and of course, Megan comes in. She's already distraught about her cat being dead. And she comes in right at the moment where she can see her mostly mangled cat, yeah. like, meowing and Writhing. stuff. And, I'm sorry, I laughed at that too. I thought it was hilarious. It was funny. What's wrong it was with funny. Me? And and West wants Dan to like be his assistant, and he he's like, you know, we'll we'll be famous. We can defeat death. You know, you'll be famous and live lifetimes because he's convinced that you know uh, eventually. As of right now, he's just been experimenting on animals, and they come back, and they're violent. But he thinks if he can um, reanimate a human corpse not long after it dies, that uh, it will ha- it will retain its consciousness and memories and those things. And he thinks they can be famous, but Dan, I guess, isn't ready to do that. So instead, he rats on West to Halsey, which totally backfires. Because Halsey rescinds Dan's scholarship money, and he kicks West out of school. So I guess at this point, Dan feels like he has no other choice but to try to work with West, because what else are they going to do? Yeah. They're both kicked out of school or whatever. So they sneak into the morgue. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when things get really fun. West kind of convinces him, right, that, like, look, this is our your only option. Like, we know we can do this, and we can turn Halsey around if we can just prove to him, you know, that we can do it. So we've got to go. And I guess he thinks that if they just carry this little tape recorder around, you know, like scientists do in movies where they record their notes in real time into tape recorder, that if they do that while they're trying to reanimate a corpse in the morgue and are successful, then that's the proof they need to show to the dean. This is when all hell breaks loose, though, because it's fun, uh, though, like they go they go to the morgue and they're like looking at different bodies and looking at cause of death and seeing which one would be the most viable. Uh, And they end up finding this guy who had only died a couple of hours before and he seemed otherwise healthy. This guy is actually Arnold Schwarzenegger's longtime body double. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Body doubled for Schwarzenegger in multiple movies and he looks like him i mean he's huge yeah that would not be the person that i would choose to reanimate obviously (laughs) it's a big mistake because he comes this guy comes back to life and he's violent and he's like throwing them all around halsey and megan are there looking for dan um and halsey comes in and the huge naked reanimated corpse 
kills him, and then uh, West takes down the corpse, like, uses, like, a bone saw or something, cuts all the way through his chest, and, and so the corpse is dead again, but now Halsey's also dead. But since he only died moments before, West injects him with the serum, thinking that he'll, you know, come back fully aware and all that stuff. And he does come back, and he seems... Uh, maybe a little bit more aware than the other guy had, but he's still crazy and and whacked out yeah. and violent Powered in the corner. And yeah, mm-hmm. and Megan comes in and sees him, and and they say that you know West West explains that he came in and he was acting all crazy, and now he's you know I don't know he, he explains it away somehow. I, I'm not sure exactly. You know, Megan's distraught, obviously, but Doctor Hill, the brain doctor, can you know assures her, "Oh, don't worry, I'll I'll take good care of your dad." And um, if you need anything, if you're lonely, like again, totally creeping on her, <laughs> disgusting. Yeah, he's trying his hypnotic act on her, basically, and uh, and it almost works. Except, uh, well, I love that Doctor Hill has an office that also has a padded room uh-huh. right next to it. Yeah, <laughs> with a window in there, how convenient! Yeah, a, a one-way mirror. I, I read also in the trivia that that padded room was so poorly constructed that uh, the actor playing her dad couldn't really bounce around the walls because he tried it once and it knocked a wall down. <laughs> uh huh. But yeah, he bangs his kind of forehead on the glass, and so you know, Doctor Hill's like, "I'm going to take control of the situation. I'm going to take care of your dad. You just trust me, and if there's anything you need, blah 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 blah." In the meantime, uh, he decides he is going to investigate Halsey. Uh, and so he pulls Halsey into his lab, I guess, autopsy room. I mean, he's not dead. And uh, he's done all these scans and things on him. He sa- he has uh, uh, Megan sign a release form so that he can mm-hmm. do exploratory surgery on him under the guise of fixing his brain. But what he instead does is once he realizes this guy should be dead, but he's not... Um, he decides he needs to make the patient docile so that he for further study. And so he uses his little laser tool to basically lobotomize him through the forehead. Yeah. But he also immediately goes to West's basement lab and is like, I know what you're doing. You have to tell me your secrets. And he Jedi mind tricks West. So West gives him his notes and Hill's looking through the notes. He's like, oh my God, this is genius. I'm going to be famous. And while he's got his back turn, West hits him with a shovel and then decapitates him with a shovel. Mm. And then and then immediately thinks, you know what? I've never tried the serum just on different parts before. <laughs> so he injects it into the head and he injects it into the torso, both of which reanimate separately. <laughs> and for whatever reason... West does kind of retain some of his consciousness because he can talk. He talks weird, like he talks slow and low, but he can talk. You mean Hill. And, you mean yeah, Hill. that's what I mean. Sorry, Hill. Yeah, he talks low and slow, but he can talk. And he can also, like, remotely control his torso. And <laughs> so then the rest of it is hilarious because he <laughs> Hill is, like, walking around carrying his own head like in a bowling bag and wearing like a like a cpr dummy head on his shoulders (laughs) oh it's really really funny 
and goes back he goes back to the lab where then he like hypnotizes the dean halsey mm-hmm. like through the mirror that was a weird scene mm-hmm. uh, but it was cool and then he sends halsey to abduct megan which he does <laughs> His own daughter, Halsey abducts his own daughter, lays her on the autopsy table right next to Hill's (laughs) head, which is like leering lasciviously at her. Um, Halsey strips his own daughter completely nude, Mm -hmm. ties her down to this table so that Hill can molest her. And it's... It's weird. I, I assume that this is the part that you were talking about where it's so absurd and so like uncomfortable, but at the same time, hilarious. Yeah, it's one of them. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, this is a severed head that is raping this girl as she's tied down by her own father. I mean, he's obviously like not in control of himself, right? He right. wouldn't have done that otherwise. But still, it's it's very disturbing. And then Hill has his body pick up his head. And it's just like she wake. I actually, this what's really funny is when she wakes up, and she looks left, and she starts. She looks down, sees that she's naked. She starts screaming. She looks left. She sees this bloodied head of the doctor, just like yeah, right next to her, screaming. Looks up and sees this weird-looking man standing over her. Kicks the guy, which knocks the fake head dummy head off of him. <laughs> scream some more i mean it's it's so it's so hilarious even though you shouldn't be laughing at this girl in her pretty actual situation right because it is gross like he he's definitely molested like he he fondles her breasts through the body and then Mm. through the body and then the body picks up the head and he kisses her and licks her face and then like sucks at her breast which i mean this in the context of the movie it's gross but i'm also just just kind of thinking of like these actors really had to do this and this is really intimate in a gross (laughs) way and then the 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 body moves the head down between her legs his tongue is out uh huh. It, it's really pretty darn graphic, but I feel like at this point, West and Dan bust in right before, like, like seemingly right before the body was going to thrust the head right, you know, between her into legs. her lady area. Oh yeah, it was very. Uh, it was right in the nick of time. <gasps> and I guess, like, uh, apparently, this actor uh, was really troubled. Uh, uh, performing this scene yeah um very very uncomfortable performing the scene um and i guess his wife was uh troubled by it too because when she saw it she jumped up and left the screening and then divorced him (laughs) 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 surely there's more to it but uh seemingly this was like the straw that broke the camel's back and she literally divorced him because she was so (laughs) disgusted uh, but Dan and Wes show up and, and, you know, are saving the day or whatever. And West is confronting Hill again, insulting him and says something like, it's the greatest line in the movie. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. <laughs> <laughs> and he just says it with such sincere sincerity. It's it's uh, it's laugh out loud funny 
Um, but West is like, I have a plan, and Hill's like, so do I. And then all of the other corpses in the morgue spring to reanimated life and begin to attack Dan and West. And then there's a whole big fight scene that goes on for a long time with all these naked people mm-hmm. um, running And then around. it gets into like bizarro territory where I think uh, at one point West says something, I guess this was his plan, he said something like, I, I never tried overdose, and he jams two of these needles into the back of one of the core. I think it was... Um, it's Hill's body. His body falls down, and I guess it just decides to reanimate all of the organs in his body. <laughs> yeah. Because his chest bursts open, and these intestines start flying out, wrapping themselves around uh, West. That's how West dies. Well, it's left, I mean, because he comes back for the sequels. But, yeah, we don't know if he's dead. But that's dead. the last we see of him, right. He, as, um, you know, Megan and Dan are fighting off corpses too, but they kind of get free and are running out. Meanwhile, like, chemical smoke is filling the room, um, and West screams at Dan, my notes, take my notes! And he throws, <laughs> and he throws his notes, and Dan takes them. Um, but that's the last we see of him. Yeah, he's presumably dead, but we don't actually see him die. Which in horror movies, you know, means he's he's probably coming back at some point. But he doesn't come back in this movie. They run away, but they're pursued by a couple more corpses. One of which gets a hold of Megan and starts throttling her. And Dan can't get the corpse off, so he runs down the hall and breaks the glass and and gets the fire axe and comes back and and chops up the corpse and gets it off of Megan, but it's, it's too late. Um, she's, she's dead. He, he races her to the emergency room and puts her, you know, on a a gurney and tries to give her CPR again. Here we are right back where we started. Same people and everything. Same people. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to resuscitate her. They try to, you know, shock her. Um, but she's dead, and uh, all of the other doctors walk away, and he has uh, West's bag, and he pulls out the serum, um, and he says, I love you, and injects her, and then it cuts to black, and we just hear her scream. So apparently she has been reanimated, but that's mm. the end. And then, of course, the sequel is uh, Bride of Reanimator, and they wanted Barbara Crampton to come back uh, and play the bride, but it was a small role, and her agent uh, basically told her that it was beneath her uh, to take such uh, a small role. So she didn't come back, so they cast somebody else, a different woman, um, and in the story, they set out to build a perfect woman using different parts of different women, and they use Megan's heart. Um, so she's still there, but it doesn't look like her. Uh. And then in the third one, um, which came out in the 2000s sometime, West is in prison, and I think like a prison doctor convinces him to continue his experiments or something. And then there were other planned sequels. Like there was a planned sequel where either West or Dan, I don't remember, one of them was going to be called to the White House to reanimate the dead president or vice president of the United States. That was going to be House of Reanimator. <sighs> and then there was another one too that was going to have West lose his memory and have to start his experiments all over again. And, but those never... Um, 
came to fruition. But this one, again, I can't really give any kind of um, critique on the sequels because I haven't seen them. And I'm not, I don't know that I'm necessarily even going to race out to see them. Maybe someday yeah. if, if I come upon them. But uh, I'm pretty much satisfied with this one on its own. And it's not my favorite movie. I don't feel compelled to watch it over and over again. But... I do have a lot of appreciation for it. There's really a lot of good stuff going on. The effects are good. It's really bloody. It's a super bloody movie. Practical effects that don't always look real, but it looks like they took a lot of care with. Uh, The acting is good uh i really like jeffrey combs performance um it's it's unique um it's a little bit over the top in my opinion but in a good way i I think that it serves the story well love barbara crampton so there's a lot of things to like it's it's a it's an original take even though it's inspired clearly inspired by the story of Frankenstein. It's it's an original take. It's a unique movie. It's different than other things that were going on at the time, and there's really not been anything that I've seen that has been a lot like it. It, it, it kind of stands on its own. Um, so I would definitely recommend it to uh, any horror enthusiast who hasn't seen it, and I'd be willing to bet that any real fan of horror would like me at least appreciate a lot of things about it, if not out. Some, I think a lot of people would just outright love it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I echo everything that you said. I thought it was a really interesting take on the Frankenstein story. It kind of hits very similar beats. It goes a little above and beyond, modernizes it, and uh, also adds a lot of blood and gore and, and fun effects. You know, sometimes it looks cheap and, and silly, but it's the 80s. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, and it's a fun. lower. Lower budget movie. Uh, it's got a little bit of camp in it, but I was surprised actually at the lack of camp, like overt camp. I expected it to come across more campy than it really does. And I think, again, part of that is due to the filmmakers involved. Like we've talked about before with like, again, in this in this wheelhouse, like Troll, Society, those kinds of things. They, they do get, some of these movies are quite campy, but also there's just another layer there. There's just this real surreal, very original quality to them that we end up really enjoying. And uh, even big budget horror movies or Hollywood movies in general can't always do that. So uh, I I can see why the movie is memorable, not just because of that shocking scene with Barbara Crampton, um, but I am actually happy to hear that that scene wasn't traumatic for her. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and everybody seemed to walk away with good feelings about about the movie and about their participation in it. So um yeah, it's it's ended up with a life on its own on home video. Um and uh it's well regarded right now. Even Roger Ebert, can you believe that, gave this movie like three out of four stars when he originally reviewed it. And he even said something like, you know, I I can't even explain why. I just walked out of the movie theater feeling like totally satisfied and uplifted <laughs> when I was a, in a room full of people, you know, wildly yelling at the screen. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah, I totally get that. So It's also uh, right now, as of, you know, this recording, it's, it's uh, easily accessible. It's streaming in lots of places. It's streaming for free on Tubi. It's on Shudder and I think several other places as well. So if you haven't seen it, you should be able to find it pretty easily. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed this one, please share it with a friend. You can find us online if you just Google Two Guys in a Chainsaw Podcast, where you'll find our Facebook page, 
our Twitter feed, our Patreon uh, page. If you'd like to become a patron of the show and uh, have access to some uh, extra things. So we have some mini-sodes out there. Uh, we've talked about uh, a lot of random things, about uh, the horror video games, about the, a little more in-depth about the 80s slasher movie month that we did last month. All these things you can find if you become a patron of our podcast. We really thank all of our patrons as well as our regular listeners for all of your support. Thank you so much and spread the love. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys in a chainsaw. Ah.